Hi, this is Areej Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Dr. Brian McCundy is an academic philosopher and health humanities researcher with a background in medicine. His work is uh, directed towards understanding and addressing the social configurations that improve or worsen the well-being of those served least well by society. Dr. Brian McCundy, thank you for joining me on the line today. Thanks so much for having me, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this piece that you've written on your blog. It's titled Thinking Through COVID-19. Um, and I've been thinking a lot and and also not doing much thinking because my brain can't really <laughs> process that much at the moment. But I have noticed that there have been, you know, a set of facts in inverted commas about COVID-19, um, that it doesn't discriminate, that we need to focus on logical approaches as outlined mm. to us by medical experts and, you know, bigwig academics and policymakers. You're not totally convinced by this. Why? No, I mean... It's interesting, isn't it? It's, um, there's this really interesting paradox where when there is a crisis, um, you know, like when we all kind of need to come together and make a concerted effort to addressing stuff, the reflex is to fall back on what we know, right? The reflex is, is to kind of to do what seems um, the most sensible in the system to do at the time. And... You know, there's a sense in which that's considered, but there's also a sense in which emergency or crisis becomes this alibi that keeps us from having to, actually having to seriously think through why we're in the situation we're in and how best to deal with it. So, I mean, like, the idea that um, a virus doesn't discriminate uh, because it's just a passenger, it's not a thinking thing, it's one of those kind of cliches, right? It's one of those ideas that's just out there that if you actually think about it, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny, but, uh, you know, I don't think we're very good at scrutiny when we feel like there's an emergency or there's a crisis that's upon us. But when you're in, like, a time of panic, is there time to think? Do we have the time to think about bigger, broader social issues during this time of crisis? You know, and I think the conventional wisdom is that, no, because it's crisis, but actually we we can't afford not to think. You know, uh, I think that's exactly when you can't afford not to think. So, you know, um, medical training is an interesting uh, you know, is, is, is interesting in this regard. Like, um, medical training is such that when there is a surgical emergency, there's some things that you just do almost automatically, and you're trained to do them almost automatically. But the almost is important, right? Because one of the the most important parts of the training is trying to make sure that you're trained well enough to recognize when that automatic response doesn't apply. Because uh, an automatic approach to everything will mean that in some cases you're wrong and some people will be really badly served. And I think, you know, so the reflex to, to not think, to just act because we're, you know, we're panicking or it's a crisis or it's an emergency, that reflex is understandable. But I think there's a, it's the same with... Uh, pilots, right? Mm. Like the good, the good pilots know that um, yes, there are some set responses when things are going wrong, but also like the really, really good pilots know when not to follow those set responses and when to kind of dig a little deeper and ask, uh, is there something that we're not thinking about that we ought to be thinking about right now? And I think the same holds for us as a society in this moment. It's interesting because Australia has a habit of. Um and has like a history and a context of tending to revert back to um, some really kind of 
heinous policy oh. and thinking oh. when we're in a time of crisis, economic crisis or, or anything at all. And we have this tendency to really revert back to, you know, the worst of the worst. And that yeah. is a fear that I have um, when it comes to this COVID-19 crisis. Yeah, I agree, right? And because what what people revert back to, what a society reverts to is what's comfortable and what's kind of most ingrained. And and so one of the things we have to ask ourselves is, as a society, what's ingrained, right? Like, what are those aspects of our society that are so deep-seated we just don't pay them attention uh, most of the time? So, you know, we take for granted that we're a prosperous nation, but we don't interrogate how that prosperity came about. Mm. At cost, what actually happened over time, what what injustices um, have made for and facilitated that prosperity. Um, And so a reversion to what got us here can only mean a repetition of some of those injustices, right? Um, But... You know, it's a, what's difficult is that for too many of us, too many of us are too invested in the status quo. You know, too many of us, um, under the best of circumstances, do well um, with just the prevailing injustices that it seems like a good idea to go back to the way things were. And, you know, a parallel is... Um, you know, in Australia, for example, there's a lot of criticism of the Donald Trump Make America Great Again. And rightfully so, right? Because it's like, at what period, which period do you want to go back to? You know, like pre-civil rights, pre-women suffrage, which, you know, civil uh, colonialism, which period do you want to revert to? But the same question applies to us, right? Like, if there's a comfort in a pre-COVID situation, it's like, which exact pre-COVID situation are we comfortable reverting to? Yeah. And you mentioned in your piece that um, Prime Minister Scott Morrison's advice was for Australians was to keep being Australians to get through this together. You just keep being yeah. Australian and then we'll, we'll, we'll get through this. What are the implications? Yeah. What are the implications of that? Well, and again, it's like if every day Australia works for you, then that seems perfectly reasonable. I mean, I'm not as I'm not particularly upset with Scott Morrison making that claim because I think it's um I think it honestly illustrates the position of most members of Australian society. Right. Most people are invested in uh, the pre-COVID situation remaining as is, you know. Um, and and so for me, what's more what's more useful than kind of. Uh, shaking our heads with Scott Morrison, is thinking, okay, so why is it that so many of us buy into this? You know, like, um, because, you know, policymaking hasn't fundamentally changed as a result of COVID. Mm. You know, the, uh, the workings of government haven't fundamentally changed. The practice of medicine hasn't fundamentally changed. Uh, you know, the, um, the education system hasn't fundamentally changed. And I think the reason it hasn't fundamentally changed is policymakers for the most part, uh, educators for the most part, uh, medical professionals for the most part, are as invested in Australia being Australia, you know, uh, in a pre-COVID Australia as Scott Morrison is. Um, and that's a, that's a frightening thought, right? Mm. Um, yeah, the fact that uh, we have a jobs keepers allowance, and there's a distinction between people who have um, apparently lost their jobs to no fault of their own, and by implication, others who therefore are what deservingly unemployed. You know, uh, the fact that when some people uh, need to be quarantined, they get put up in nice hotels, um, and the same kind of consideration isn't given to. Um, the so-called homeless under the, under normal circumstances, um, the relationship between the state and you know like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, like mm. you know questions of of, of sovereignty and community control. There's um 
says a lot about how we ordinarily structure our society. That for that 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 points to the the ways in which the society uh, functions very differently for people who are situated differently in this yeah, country. Absolutely, being being Australian and and kind of continuing perpetuating that status quo in the time of crisis. Is a, is a terrifying thought for a lot of people who don't benefit from that, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's very interesting to consider um, a, you know, a perspective like yours at this time because we're told so often that it's just time to act now, right? And every time you act, you're making a decision and you're basing your decision on the knowledge base that you have and the people who are given the, the space to... Um, you know, make decisions based on their knowledge base are not representative of the Absolutely. whole of this country. What can we do, Absolutely. though, in a time like this to try and move away from this? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I mean, the first thing is, I think, to recognise just the depth of the effective investments, the emotional investments uh, that people have in the status quo. Um, because it's not, it's not just something as simple as, um, you know, it's, it's not, so, it, I'm not sure that what's ultimately most important is the well-being of society. Mm. I think the, the well-being of, the, you know, the well-being and the safety of some segments of society and the preservation of, um, the status quo, the, as we currently know it, is probably more important than just well-being in general, right? Yeah. So, for example, and I, I mean, like, I understand that these are really complex um, and really difficult decisions. But, for example, there's some choices that are clearly being made with an eye to uh, the long-term economic prospects, um, you know. Um, there's some cases where the calculations that are being made that some risks are worth it given uh, the need to keep the economy afloat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I mean, like, and I understand, and I understand that kind of marginalized people, uh, people of the migrant society, are going to suffer most from an economic downturn. But at the same time, how does this then factor in, for example, to our debates and our thinking around uh, climate catastrophe and the environment. Mm. You know, um, our kind of emotional investment in how things have always been probably has a lot to answer for in terms of why there haven't been um, radical steps taken to minimize carbon emissions, you know. And so I... I, I, you know, like I don't know. Um, I, I, I think I think the the one thing that's definitely unhelpful is um, to is to pretend as though that um, there are simple solutions. Yeah. Because again, I I feel like one of the one of the sad things about the situation is. You know, the government has a responsibility to reassure, but it also has a responsibility to educate the public and to tell the truth. And I don't think there's been enough kind of public education and public truth-telling about uh, sustainability, about kind of cost of the uh, way of life up until now, about kind of issues of uh, just economic distribution. And so there's this opportunity for kind of truth-telling and... You know, communal discussions about what kind of society we ought to be that aren't happening. Yeah. It's interesting because I think about, um, you know, a time like this, this, you know, state of crisis and panic that we're Mm. in around the world and in Australia as a time where, um, you know, conversations and thought can be locked. But what I have found through your piece and just having this conversation with you now is that it's a it's a perfect time to question how we got here and why we got yeah. here and yeah. and where we can go in the future if we want to change the way the status quo in this country um, mm. gets to make you know 
gets to be perpetuated but also is very much backed and supported by the people that it benefits. And I think that well, you're absolutely right that it's right, like now and given the situation that we're in, is the perfect yeah. time to start considering what has happened for the last however many hundred years um, yeah. and what that means for the future. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, um, I think I don't read a lot of uh, Foucault, but like there's this one line that he has where he talks about wanting an insurrection of subjugated knowledges, mm-hmm. which I just think is just gold, right? Yeah. And I think in this country, it's like... There are people who've been kind of thinking through and dealing with and trying to make sense of the catastrophic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like, since 1788, Indigenous communities have been grappling with the catastrophic, right? Yeah. Um, I think about the community sector, um, you know, like, like community radio, uh, community organizations, uh, environmental groups. So for me, it's like one of my frustrations, one of the reasons I wrote that was watching kind of the mainstream media and seeing who people were going to um, as authorities and just thinking, you know, I have a lot of respect for the chief medical officer. Um, I think uh, they have a lot to contribute in this moment, but it's a very narrow kind of contribution. And I think what's tragic is the the lack of recognition of, you know, say, um, indigenous, um, you know, uh, epistemic contribution in a time like this. You know, um, there's been a recognition of the specific kinds of vitriol that um, Asian Australians have faced at this moment. Um, I think about someone like Helen Law, who I think is like the foremost critical philosopher of race uh, in Australia. Um, she's Asian Australian, but like I don't see her on TV every night, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I think about, you know, like the, the folks, you know, a few, there was almost a couple of years ago uh, when Tanya Ernest Williams uh, led that protest. I was like, you know, like, let's burn this down. Like, I've, I've thought about this, and I was like, and if you read her entire statement, it was essentially something along the lines of um, the status quo is unsustainable and unjust. We need to raise that to the ground and collectively find ways to build a more just society. You know, like, I just think it's an incredibly wasted opportunity that, again, in the mainstream media, at least, there hasn't, you know, like, there hasn't been more of a discussion of uh, with her and an engagement with her thinking. Mm-hmm. And if it actually turns out to be the case that um, COVID-19 is the result of a particular kind of interaction between humans and animals, um, a lot of that is probably to do with rapid urbanization um, and the fact of increased uh, urbanization into the future, the effects of environmental change are probably yeah. going to mean that COVID is just, you know, they, they, we're probably going to have more of these sorts of scenarios. I mean, like, I don't understand why we're not having more conversations <laughs> with environmentalists and environmental organizations. You and me both. It's really, it's really interesting to me um, just kind of sitting back and having the luxury of being an observer somewhat in, in terms yeah. of what's going on at the moment as someone who's working from home and my only real movements is coming into the studio once a week to, yeah. to do this show and just kind of watching what's ha- having so much time to just sit and watch what's happening and thinking about what kind of conversations are being had and what, more importantly, what conversations are not being had. Yeah. Um, and I just am a bit anxious that we might, you know, revert back to what we know will probably happen and where things will probably yeah. go and we'll just kind of sit here with our fingers in our ears and our eyes closed, um, <laughs> acting like nothing's really happened and we can continue to have some sort of Band-Aid for every for everything without considering what's actually happening. It's a it's an unusual time to to it, think. It it's an unusual time to think. It is. I mean, it is. It is. Like but you know, I mean, I'm <laughs> you know, like I I'm often I feel like I'm this uber pessimist, but I think it comes from a hopeful place. And and 
you know, like, Quill always makes a distinction between what he calls radical hope and cheap optimism, right? Like, I'm not a cheap optimist. I'm really not. But, you know, uh, there's a, this, you know, like, uh, small academic community led by Chelsea Bond um, that, uh, you know, and, and uh, that I get to participate in. And um, that seems like a, a site for kind of like interaction of subjugated knowledges in really cool ways, right? Yeah. Um, I think about your radio show, right? Um, again, it's like, uh, and, you know, like it was such a thrill, you know, like going back and like listening to some of the other interviews and the podcast. I was like, oh, wow, you know? Um, it's, yeah, but again, it's like the conversations that you're facilitating and that you're having and that other people are facilitating and that other people are having. I, I just, I think my, where my radical hope lies is that if these kind of pockets of, if these pockets where other kinds of values uh, are allowed to flourish mm. um, and other ideas are taken seriously and are nurtured and fostered, I, I think maybe, maybe at some point that spills over, right? Maybe at some point uh, the quote-unquote mainstream recognizes that our current path is untenable mm. and allows for some of this thinking that's happening in the margins to come into the centre. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. There's no lack of variety of thinking and voice um, in this country. There's just a lack of yeah. Um, representation. Yeah. yeah. I, I, can I ask you a question? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, because, like, I just think, so the media, it would seem to me that uh, if I ran some big media conglomerate, um, it would, you know, like, kind of like a diversity, and I, I don't mean that in a cheap sense, mm. you know, but I mean like a, a variety of forces, of, of perspectives, um, that there would be like a, a value to that, right, that the people would be drawn to that. And I'm just, I'm wondering why there isn't more of that. Like, why, why kind of this reversion to what's known uh, extends to the media as well? Yeah. I mean, I, that's an unanswerable question. I've worked in this sector for a little while, um, and I've worked yeah. in bigger institutions as well and, and left, right? And, and that's kind of the story mm. for a lot of people um, who are not, represented within the media landscape is that you might be one of the few that is given the opportunity and you end up in there and then you realise that you actually, it's an unsustainable work environment because, in fact, you're not doing what you think you need to be doing, right? Um, which is probably the same as academia in many, in many ways, right? So I, I, it's, it's one of those, it's absolutely valuable, but it's also one of those things where you can't um, constantly convince someone of, your value, right? That's not a. That's a very difficult job to do on top of the the job itself. And so I think that with Australia, in terms of the media community, radio is, of course, a sector that um, has been championing diversity, diversity viewpoints, and whatever across the board. But but you're absolutely right. It's definitely valuable. I don't know what the answer is. Um, and I think in this amazing radical movement that you are, you know, thinking about in this piece, I would hope that media diversity and representation will be part of, part of that yeah. and we yeah. all get to um, share our thoughts and our voices and our expertise in, in a capacity that is, um, you know, as big as we deserve. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I, I really enjoyed reading your piece, um, Dr. Brian Mukundi. Anyone can jump online onto your website and have a read of it. It's called Thinking Through COVID nineteen. It's a blog post on brianmukundi.com, and I think it is one that you probably want to sit and read with a cup of tea and and try and digest. There's a bunch of references in there that you can go back and and have a look at as well. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. That was wonderful. I enjoyed that. 
Huda Ashad is a Melbourne-based artist and scholar whose uh, photographic practice straddles a line between staged image and reality. Her work considers the representation of gender, marginality and displacement and she will be presenting tomorrow afternoon as part of the VCA Art Forum. Huda, thanks for joining me today. Uh, Hi, thanks for having me on the program. I want to, like, just start at the very start, right? So when you started taking taking photos um, when you were younger back home, what was the beginning of that like for you? How did, how did it even come about? Oh, okay. Um, uh, when I was at school, um, uh, I did a course on photography and the first time I was at the dark room, like many others, it's very cliche saying that, but that's true. Like, uh, when you print your first photograph in the dark room and you see it appearing on the paper in the, under the red light, it's just magic, you know? And I fell in love with photography from then and then um, I got into the art university in Tehran and um, and then um, I did my bachelor majoring in photography. And um, yeah, I knew straight away from uh, from then that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life and that's where my relationship with it started. What kind of photos were you taking when you were in Iran? Um, I was um, mostly doing documentary photography. That's what I was really passionate about, covering issues that were related to social, political issues of the time. And uh, what I really loved about photography was its ability to document um, hidden and untold stories because Iran is a society, like um, when I was born, was right after the Islamic Revolution in Iran and um, the beginning of the war between Iran and Iraq, which lasted for eight years. And, um, yeah, a lot of the life that we had was like the way that Iran always presents itself is in a certain way and half of the reality of it remains um, uh, hidden. So I was obsessed with photography as a tool that was able to document those hidden spaces and its intrusive nature and uh, um, you know like that was something that made me really excited about, about photography and um, yeah I, I was most of the projects that I was doing was something that was in my proximity too. Mm. Like the very first project I did was like um, covering the um, um, gathering and parties of uh, in Tehran like um, uh, with my friends and we were staging a lot of the scenes back then which was banned in documentary photography but to me was uh, the way of telling these difficult stories. Is there a photographic tradition in Iran? Is there something that you were working with when you started out that you were considering beyond you know what we consider in western photography theory and stuff? Um, like the photography that is really well known of Iran, um, like it's either the very beginning of it, which was like Ingaja um, dynasty, which was, um, I don't know, like the, the archive of the Nasser ad-Din Shah um, Harim and how he was obsessed with photography uh, to like after the Islamic Revolution, the majority of the work that is known to the outside world is the images of Islamic Revolution and documentary. So documentary is the ma- was at the time that I was um, um, studying photography then the major um, interest in, um, in the industry and community and it was the way of getting your work out there to the world. Like there was a market for it outside, so a lot of people wanted to work in that genre to be able to get their works out there. Mm. And then you started your migration process and you ended up here in Australia. And what kind of differences were was there in your practice when you started taking photos here or pursuing uh, your photography it, here? Yeah, it was a kind of a shocking experience for me. I thought that when I migrated to Australia in 2007, I thought that's the end of my career as a, as a photographer because I felt like there's no historical personal connection to the new place that I was relocated to. And also, you know, that sense of authority, uh, yeah. who am I to speak out like about the issues of this country when you don't know anything about it? And it, it was a very different look too. like the surface of um, 
everything in Iran is, um, it's like being a documentary, but a good photographer in, in Iran is much easier than here because, like, everything on the streets, like, there's so much, like, um, contradictions, this the juxtaposition of modernity mm. against tradition, which is this cliche way of picturing Iran that a lot of photographers do. Um, but the surface was really... Um, different here. So I stopped making pictures and um, then I was also like struggling with um, the identity crisis like many other migrants of um, non-Western background coming to the West. And and I, uh, at some point, the lens of the camera turned towards myself and my own experiences. And that was when I started um, staging scenes that were based on my own experiences of, you know, like racism and um, misconceptions about my identity and so on. So I tried to tell those stories and challenge um, Western views of my identity as an Iranian female migrant um, through staging scenes and mani- uh, digitally manipulating images. It's really interesting because my um, favourite photographer is Malik Sidibe and I see a lot of his work um, really working in complete opposition and in complete contrast with the type of photos that were taken on the African continent of African people um, uh. by through through a Western lens. And... Um, and he's kind of his photos are quite mundane in the sense that people are just it's just two or three people or just one person who are dressed up and he's just taking a photo of them in the studio and that and they're looking directly at the barrel of the camera that's kind of like there's more to it than that but that's the the essence of that but it's so rich because it's so different to the type of photos that were taken of um of people on the African continent by through the Western lens, how do you engage with the, you know, and maybe navigate the kind of colonial histories um, uh, of photography as, as that has been, that have been used in yeah. kind of a weapon form? Absolutely. Like um, that, that's something that I researched a lot about in my PhD and um, it's, so interesting we are we have no idea how much this visual language that uh, we are accustomed to and we work and function in is basically based on imperial vision and mm-hmm. colonial vision and whether you're from for example even for myself uh, the question that you ask the tradition of photography in Iran all these visual languages that we pick up is basically established on, um, you know, uh, Western views and colonial imperial uh, views, and it serves those systems. And like even, for example, in Iran, the way that, as I said, the way that photographers document the streets of Iran and tell these stories to the outside world is the way that the West wants them to tell those stories. And like there's a market for certain images and people realize what images get out and they start making the same images that is demanded from the outside world. So at some point I started realizing um, realizing that and I, I wanted to understand, for example, where the misrepresentation of my identity comes from, why there's so much misunderstanding about it. And then I um, traced it back into the history of images from Orientalist paintings to um, to the um, you know um, uh, time after like photography was invented, which mm. became the, um, the the strongest colonial um, fertilizer. You know, like uh, the, the colonial systems always used photography from the beginning of its invention to manipulate um, the reality of the colonial states and to justify um, the, you know, um, the violence that they impose on those people. They portray them always as barbaric, as um, uneducated, as violent, and so on, and um, and to justify why the, uh, they need to colonize those spaces to educate them and so on. So when you, when you understand these histories, then you start questioning your way of making mm. images and whether there's any point to continue making work in that tradition or um, for me, it's like... Um, the need for the invention of new visual languages and changing the way that we construct images and the way that we go about making images instead of telling the stories of people 
um, I try to tell the stories with people and in collaboration with them, if that makes sense. Yeah, and there's this incredible project that you did um, in Manus Island with some of the men over there um, a few years ago. How did you engage with that project? How did they contribute um, and where was their voice in the photos that you that you took? Uh, that project grew out of, um, you know, like other projects that I did um, behold, which was about this idea of um, bodies and communities that are stripped of basic human rights and um, how do you portray the narratives and stories and this idea of the bare life, the nakedness in my work in both Behold and Remain, which was on Manus Island. It's just like um, uh, a metaphor for these uh, kind of like portraying these bare lives, basically. And uh, for, for the Manus Island project, I got in contact with Behrouz Bouchani, who's a Kurdish-Iranian uh, was at the time the refugee detained on Manus Island for more than five years. And um, basically it took um, five months for us to plan the whole trip to get there. And my way of working with those guys was um, to, before even making images, we spend um, a lot of time talking and sharing stories. And um, I told them stories about my life. They told me their stories. And we shared tears, a lot of laughter, singing, and, and so on. So it was more about, like, getting to know each other and then, like, talking about how we... Uh, uh, what's the best way of portraying this story? Like, one thing we were sure about was that the images of refugees, as they're always portrayed as identical group of victims and, like, behind bars and so on, um, um, doesn't work and has no impact on the viewer anymore. It actually reduces them to that refugee status and um, they can never rise above that. So um, the way that we made that work was basically uh, in conversation, how we can use, um, I don't know, methods that can activate the image instead of this sort of passive uh, body. How can we sort of like uh, make them very, like, about those individuals. For example, we use natural resources around us on the island, uh, from the sand to the fire to the chicken to to the water, like, to symbolically tell these stories. And, and what I wanted to add to it was, sorry, uh, that it was mostly, like, um, a group effort. Like, for example, for each photograph that we made, like, there was someone holding the background, the other person was uh, pouring water down, the other one was, like, holding the reflector. So I had a team of people, uh, the, the men who were detained on Manus Island, um, that were kind of like we were staging these theatrical scenes together. It's amazing to me that, you know, you were you know, staging these these scenes. Essentially, I was been I was looking at some of the photos, and they are incredibly theatrical, as you say. Um, and there is a lot happening, but there's so much kind of depth and trust just in the image. You know, I was um, reading an article recently about that big apology that the National um, Geographic magazine did about um, you know all the photos that they had taken and um, and they the way that they were presented and and what have you and then I was looking back at some of the the kind of really popular photos from National Geographic um, magazine and there is yeah. it is it is it's actually quite haunting to look at them yeah. you know once you've once you've really thought about what the type of work that you're doing it is quite haunting to look back particularly at the older photos of children and adults in in situations that they did not consent and and so on and so forth yeah, it's um, it's like photography is a very uh, fascinating medium, but also uh, a very problematic one. My reasons for loving photography are the very same reasons that makes me um, uh, dislike it at most times. Because it's I dislike it because of how it has contributed to the construction of certain realities that uh, uh, erasing them takes probably centuries for us to change the way that these images um, um, somehow 
to me, they, they pierced into the psyche of the society, mm. to the world um, psyche. And uh, but also, like I love it because it has that power to um, to do that, to to leave that impact on individuals. Like, um, and um, it's just the re- that it's been in the hands of the wrong people, you know, like it's been um, used for, for wrong purposes. So uh, what I think we need more than ever is the production of images that are more just and um, to for us to create a more equal world, we need more images that are portraying us and those unseen and um, invisible communities and realities to bring them into the uh, realm of the norm. Hoda, what are you working on? What new projects are you, speaking of which, what new projects are you currently working on? Um, I don't think I've ever worked on so many projects at the same time before, <laughs> but I think this is the only thing that is getting me through this COVID um, lockdown, and I just, like, navigate through the four <laughs> different projects at the moment, and um, it's not easy actually but it's also like as I said it's helping to ignore the fear that the future holds at the moment Mm -hmm. Um, I'm working uh, on one that uh, was supposed to launch at Photo 2020 Festival in April but um, the the festival was cancelled and I was commissioned to make this work for for the festival but I'm glad that now I have more time to develop it and the festival's postponed to 2021 now. The work is on on whistleblowing in Australia and it's again like grew out of the the previous project which was on Manus Island, this idea... um, like I, I worked with a number of whistleblowers who um, uh, who worked in governmental organisations, uh, from um, disability care to youth justice to the offshore onshore detention centres, um, the army, ASIO, and so on. And uh, these people um, kind of like witnessed a lot of, you know, corruption or wrongdoing of the government. And for them to speak out, um, they were facing jail time. And um, they, 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 it's just like this idea of, like, I see the whistleblowers as the modern uh, tragic figures, basically. Yeah. And um, how this decision that they have to make for speaking out places them between, you know, the morality and the system, the morality and law. And... Um, and how for them at some point they, they speak out the truth and they lose their jobs, they lose their families, they lose their sense of security and they're faced with a society that um, chooses to remain blind to that reality. So um, it's been a really difficult project and very heavy and um, the responsibility that comes with it is quite big and I'm so thankful of all the individuals who put their trust in this, in this project. So. I'm working on this one and a few other projects that <laughs> um, hopefully uh, will be shown in the next couple of years. That sounds pretty amazing. I can't wait for when this lockdown is lifted and then Photo 2020, which will probably be called Photo 2021, is a festival that happens and then we can all go <laughs> and physically see some of this work at some point. But for now, you're doing a um, a talk via Zoom tomorrow afternoon as part of the VCA Art Forum and you'll be speaking to a bunch of different things including what we've spoken about today. What time is it? Um, it's at 12.30. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. And how can people just register? What's the process to get into it? Yeah, just go on VCA Art Forum website and uh, register online and they will send you a link. And it's open to public, so everyone can join the um, join the talk. Excellent. So that's tomorrow, Thursday, the 7th of May from 12.30pm. Jump online to the VCA website and search Art Forum and you'll find um, the link to register and put your details in and you'll get a Zoom invitation or a Zoom link. And you'll be on your way to hearing this virtual talk by Huda. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me today. Cheers. Have a good day. Bye. Bye.
You're tuned into The Wrap here on 3RRFM with me, Areej, and I'm very excited to introduce my next guest. <laughs> it's really weird to do this over the phone. It's Sampa the Great. She is... Hey, friend. She is a million things. She's born in Zambia, raised in Botswana, and now based here in Melbourne. She's a musician and an artist and this incredible creative woman who is still managing to be creative despite the... <laughs> Despite the lockdown, how are you doing? Oh, hey, Fred, how are you? <laughs> I'm Thanks okay. for having me again continuously. Listen, this, listen <laughs> you need to know that every time um, I pitch that I'm going to have you on the show, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I think, well, maybe we can get Sampa on for next week. <laughs> Everyone's like, yeah, cool. Uh, all right, so what time? Um, how we – and I'm like, oh, okay, so this is a little bit more informal for me than it is for people who are trying to run a radio station. That Absolutely. makes so much sense. Every time I come on a, the, the show for an interview, I'm like, okay, should we do the friend thing or is it like – is it profesh? And now I've just learned to be like, okay, let me just talk to my friend and we'll see what happens in between. I think that's just what it has to be. And right now we're in these really unusual times. I think that yeah. everyone listening out there just wants to hear a nice conversation with people who know each other and people who don't know each other. Yeah. So, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, it's been really tough. So, like the the beginning of the pandemic for me, I think, was a huge halt. Um, I'm a person who didn't know how to be still, especially after, you know, the return and the project just dropped. Everything was like touring, everything was making music, and that just all came to a halt. So I think it's a huge emotional moment for the music industry and for myself as well, because obviously no one for, for, no one knew that this was going to come. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just been really tough to stop and be still, which has been one of the biggest things for me is to be still personally and, and professionally. And, you know, the beginning of the pandemic for me was just dealing with everything emotionally. How is this affecting me? How is this affecting my family? How does this make me feel? And then from there... I chose the second half, which we're in right now, to actually create because before <laughs> we was we was not we was not creating. We were just dealing with what's happening emotionally, and and I think that's for a lot of artists right now is mm. is just feeling that pressure to constantly create, even though they're feeling what they are feeling right now emotionally, and it's just it's you are allowed to have that human moment to be like, okay, what am I dealing with before you know you create whatever you create, it's fine. Yeah, and for someone like you who tours a lot, you know, around the country and around the world and you spend a lot of time on the road performing to crowds, is there something in in that for you? Do you receive energy from the crowds that sustains you? Like, So how does something like this impact you? That that connection is lost. That yeah. personal face-to-face connection is lost. You know, the beautiful thing about music is it's able to bring so many people together from so many different places, and to experience that is so healing and, and shows you how we all resonate with music. But that has totally changed when everything is kind of like online, you know, mm. um, which in certain aspects you can, you know, you listen to music on your laptop or wherever and you're like oh I feel this music I can feel this person but you don't see them live so that aspect of connection with you know your fans is is gone and so you kind of have to you know restructure everything and try and still connect with people um through technology which is which is kind of the new way we're going right now I remember yeah yeah. I remember at the very beginning of the um of all this stuff happening when we, we were texting once and we were talking about, you know, oh, do you think Coachella will be cancelled? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. And we were just, we really thought we knew everything that was going to happen in the world. And suddenly it all just, I mean, Coachella yeah. postponed for October or something like that, which doesn't seem yeah. particularly likely. No, I don't think it will go at ahead. This I point. think it's, yeah. It's it's huge. It's a huge impact of everyone, even you know, stage crew, everybody behind the festivals, everybody's being hit, and it's a, a bit disappointing to see you know the arts industry not really get the funding and the backing that you know, we're used to giving everybody when these things happen. And 
you know, we kind of kind of have to lean on ourselves right now. We're all virtually unemployed and trying to figure out a way where we can create and also, you know, be compensated for how we create. Mm. It's, it's, yeah. It's a it's an unusual time. It is a totally unusual time. What I've um, done a lot of is, you know, watching Instagram lives between bigger yeah. artists, I guess, <laughs> through that um, versus thing that Timberland and um, yeah. Swizz Beats keep reminding us is like yeah. the biggest chore they've ever done in their lives. Um, but I've been watching all of these artists perform and they've been DJs yeah. performing on Instagram mm. Live and I have a bit mm. of a complicated feeling about yeah. that, particularly for artists who um, are struggling at the moment, this kind of expectation right. to continue to make yeah, content. Yeah, 100%. How have um, you navigated that? Um, in the beginning, it was just straight out, I ain't doing it, I don't yeah. care, I'm not doing it, um, which would be met with a bit of, you know, frustration, hey, you know, you sing, you rap, why, why can't you perform for us, and it's just like, you do understand this a human being experiencing something, you know, yeah. I'm not here solely for your entertainment, let yeah. me feel, let me go through this as well, this is affecting me. In, in every way, you know, personally, financially, you know. So I, I'd like the time to also experience this. And there are a lot of us who don't have the privilege to continuously just give and, and, and share output without, you know, having any compensation for it. So that has been a huge conversation in the arts industry. And not that there's an answer for it, but there's definitely some good conversations happening as to how, we can move forward with this and and I'm liking that that you know point has been reached yeah. instead of hey just continue create content create just, content yeah it's people like, people want it people woo! want the content they're hungry for it it's like <laughs> the people make the content my guy the same way that, that people want true. the content people make 100%. the content um, I, I put this little funny meme in my story yesterday of me just like looking really frustrated <laughs> at all these little, um, you know, comments of like, make a make music. Are you dropping it now? Are you dropping it now? <laughs> and the number of artists who are like relatable, yeah. I'm right there. And I'm just like, I put this as a joke, but it's actually just, it's the truth. The pressure is there. Uh, for creatives to constantly create mm. and it's just like it's not healthy and it's not normal it should be done at your own pace especially for those who take actual, actual time to create what they create yeah. so mm. one thing you have kind of released one piece of content in inverted commas <laughs> that you have released is this entire documentary that <laughs> that's a thing that... you go talk about she about me <laughs> Tell me about it. Tell me about its yeah. inception. What's the idea behind right. it? All of it. Um, so, you know, the Return Doco is one of two. There's one ongoing. But we always knew we were going to release this short one because, you know, it was around the making of the Return um, and everything that went down with it. It was so fast. I, I think once everything was released, um, everything started going really quick, you know, from singles, uh, uh, music videos, interviews, everything, touring, everything started really going quick. And it was a blessing that everything was documented mm -hmm. because sometimes you can't feel it as it's going. Um, and what The Return did is just bring us back to the moment where we were creating the music and the story behind the music and the people behind the music. There were so many like beautiful moments in the making of this album where, you know, we broke down as we were making the music. Um, you know, if you watch the short film, you would see uh, a, a bit where Hussein, Monji and I are literally breaking down and JJ's in the other room crying. And we just have never shared that experience with each other. And it just shows you how deep and vulnerable it can go with these stories from people from different places to have the same exact feeling of belongingness for home and yeah just that moment for me is something that I, I wanted to share including just going home itself going to my high school and seeing the students there and like them actually recognizing what I do and it being like this is like 360 this is a 360 moment for me yeah. going to the old house I used to live in you know shooting a music video with my parents like that just closed that gap of oh that's that music rap thing something does over there <laughs> to them being in the songs and in the music videos and it it just it felt like that little girl whose dreams came true basically yeah. and it was just all documented and 
we decided to just put it out. We no expectations of it. We didn't want a huge, you know, situation with it. You know, everyone's being still at this moment. Everyone is, you know, reflecting how their journey and the, their music. And I just thought it was a perfect time to release documentary it was a perfect time to release a documentary and I remember watching I watched it again last night and I that moment with um Hussein is one that is so like I always have such a visceral response to it I find I am always so emotional watching that because I can really see the process that's going on for him in the moment you know when you know when you capture something that is so deeply authentic and in the moment you see someone's emotional response to it and release and relief like it was just yeah. it's such a, a yeah. strong moment to be allowed to be able to share that like that moment everyone in the documentary just to freely be like okay we're going to express ourselves here for you something it's going to be the most vulnerable bits of ourselves and you know having that and respectfully sharing that with yeah it was but, yeah it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Brilliant. It was brilliant. It's fantastic. Um, you, I'm not, of course, when this is like not a, I'm not trying to say anything, but there hasn't been many releases in the last minute, right? And that's cool. And that's cool, right? I hate you song. I haven't actually heard a new song in a minute. But, but you were featured in um, a track called Outer Body Stranger by um, a group called Super Eat. Ego. Tell yeah. me about that whole process and who they are. Yeah. Oh my God, Super Ego um, is a group from Perth. Amazing musicians. Just, I love when you're able to, you know, push a genre of music and just add whatever your inspiration is to it. And that's what they do. Um, so I was thrilled when they asked me to be a part of the song. Um, and so Nelson, who's the lead singer in the group, you know, sent me a story about him looking for his ancestral roots. Um, And he wanted me to be a spiritual guide within that journey. And we tried to portray that in the song. And I just have never been asked that. Mm. It it was so beautiful the way he asked me to be part of the process. And we just talked through it over phone. Um, And I wrote my verse. I sent it through and he loved it. And hopefully we get to work on more songs together. But yeah, I think that was one of the last kind of releases I worked on. <laughs> but I'm still working on music as we speak. It, it's so funny. I, I said the first half was spent, like, not creating, and the second half is just full-on learning everything that I've ever wanted to learn. So guitar, I'm on that. Producing, now I'm on that. And then I have an EP. <laughs> And working on Monjay's second EP. Monjay needs to release music, and that's all I'm going to say. And listen. I'll just leave that there. I just, I just feel I like... I will leave it there. I feel like this moment in, in my life is dedicated to Monjay releasing music as oh soon, as, soon as humanly possible. But the thing is, it's there. Like, it's not like we're just talking. Oh, she did, like, the music is there. It's so... Soon, hopefully. No pressure, I'm, but pressure. I'm trying to not, you know, Joe Jackson, the situation, obviously, is my family member, <laughs> so I will just continuously support. But, yeah, she has a, a full EP ready. She's actually working on the second one, um, and I'm polishing up my EP. So I'm just glad that we were able to create through this time because I know a lot of people are finding it hard to create. But there's music, and, you know, it will be dropping really soon. This is very exciting to hear. I also need you to leave Joe Jackson in peace. Um, I'm, I'm a play. I'm a play. I only use that in respect because, like, everyone in my family does something in media, and my poor parents are like, okay, so no one's going to do insurance. <laughs> We're like, nah. No, so my little brother is singing as well. So. I love it. I love it. Um, I'm going to play Out of Body Stranger by Super Ego featuring some yeah. of the great now and then we'll come back for a bit more of a chat and to talk about the uh, playlist that you sent me. Beautiful. Out of Body Stranger, Super Ego featuring Sampa the Great. This song I've played on the show quite a bit uh, already because I absolutely love it. I also had not heard of their work before yeah. Um I saw your collaboration, and they're so yeah. sick. 
They're an amazing group. That's actually the first group where I performed live with them and I did a whole scream rock situation. Once they showed the video and she was like, what's going on here? And I'm like, I love rock. I'm <laughs> screaming now. They're really, yeah, they're amazing. They're, energy. They're amazing. so good. They're so amazing. And I love that, you know, we've got our little Perth group and we are representing yeah. this country yeah. because sometimes we are a little bit, not local focused, uh, all of us in our music consumption. So that's really, really yeah. special. So what's what's up with you? What's happening now? Yeah. Are we doing? I know that there's not that many shows happening, but yeah, you gotta keep on reminding us. That's okay. <laughs> I'm bringing I'm bringing you back. Back to reality. So for us, it's just uh, creating now this new avenue because everyone's performing live, and so. Uh, I reckon that's the next step. There's actually an opportunity happening this month because it's Africa Month. So um, there's an event called Africa Delic that is happening this month. And, you know, they're just getting different African artists to perform live. And so if you keep your eyes on the social, there'll be a live event. And then just, you know, certain things I want to perform live with my sister, they they. They, I have like two um, singers in this house, and yeah. we definitely want to do some covers, performances, start going live as well, and yeah, yeah. doing it with violence though. Exactly you at know? your own pace. Yeah. Exactly, you know, we still do the events, we still, you know, get our conversation, and, but we still will perform, and we still, you know, we'll put things out there because we love to. So that's kind of what's going on at the moment. That's yeah. exciting. I mean, that's exciting. That's it's different from what you know has been happening in the last minute. Listen, yeah. we have to just make this kind of stuff work. Even the fact that you and I are doing this interview over the phone and not in studio is a first for yeah. us, right? Like we've yeah. never, we've only done in studio interviews, but we're yeah. adapting with the times and we're still trying to make it work. So Which is okay. that's what it is. That's the one. You sent yeah. me um, a bunch of tracks to play. Yeah. Let's chat a little bit about them so I can play them before I have to say goodbye. Um, so I've been listening to a lot of R&B, a lot of soul and a lot of gospel. And that's mainly because of writing. You know, I've been going in on, on writing songs, on singing more. Even though I have been singing my past projects, I haven't, you know, been fully singing like it's not just me alone in a project and you know that's kind of the direction right now so I've been listening to a lot of soul music and this is kind of you know the sounds that I've been listening to and I decided to put them into a little mix so you hear a little bit of that a little bit of that a little bit of that (laughs) (laughs) my friend thank you so much for chatting Mm. with me this morning and for continuing to make all of this awesome music and Aww. being such a fabulous person generally. <laughs> you for being a beautiful friend and also happy belated in, hey, in case ain't nobody. <laughs> I don't think these people need to know my business. But, yes, it was my birthday yesterday and I will accept all of your birthday wishes. Thank you, Triple R audience. Um, I just, before I let you go, I interviewed this morning this really awesome academic from Queensland Dr. Uh, Brian McCundy, and he's this academic philosopher in, he works within the health humanities research. And um, he was telling me that he was listening back to some of the interviews that I'd done on the show. And the one that he loved the most was the one that I did with you when the return just came out. And he said the only vinyl that he has that he listens to is of your album. So always spreading far and wide. Oh, friend, thank you. That's so beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> and it's so he's yeah he's really really clever and he yeah. was just like you know I really really love this album I really really Aww. love it and I listen to it all the time so big shout out to Brian McCundy all the way in Queensland where all some of the great stands it's not just you my friend uh, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me and I'm gonna play this mix oh thank you love you love you too bye bye Kira Peru idiot. <laughs> It was the last track from Sump of the Greats mix that she sent through to me before that we heard from 1J with The Divine. We heard from Munga with Fool's Gold, Solange, Dreams, Kaya, Heavenly and PJ Morton first begun 
Uh, a big, big thanks to everyone who's come on the show today. I've had a really nice jam-packed show. Big thanks to Dr. Brian Mukundi, who's an academic philosopher and health humanities researcher. He's also a sample of the great Stan, like me. Um, but he also has a background in medicine and his work is directed towards understanding and addressing the social configurations that improve or worsen the well-being of those served least well in society. And he's written an incredibly thoughtful piece on his website um, titled Thinking Through COVID-19 and it it urges us to really take this time to consider the type of society that we have built and what we want for our future. You can jump on brianmacundi.com um, and you'll find the blog post there. Big thanks also to Huda Afshad, who is a Melbourne-based artist and scholar whose photographic practice straddles a line between stage image and reality and her work also considers a representation of gender, marginality and displacement and she'll be, she'll be presenting tomorrow afternoon as part of the VCA, Victorian College of the Arts Art Forum, and, she, and that will be at 12.30pm. You can register for the Zoom link on the VCA website. And, of course, a big thanks to Sampa the Great for joining Jumping on the phone to chat, uh, jump on her socials for any announcements on live performances, um, you know, albeit probably virtual live performances. You should also check out her documentary. It's on YouTube. There are links on her socials as well. And um, coming up next is the gorgeous Mel Cranenberg, who has a mad jam-packed show for you. And after that, of course, Beth AQ will take you through the glass house it has been so much fun hanging out with you this morning. It is such an honour and such a joy to come into Triple R and present this show to you every single week and such an honour and a joy to speak to all of the incredible people that I have the opportunity to speak to. So thank you for that. Be really kind to yourself and each other and I will catch you next week. My name is Areej. Keep Triple R on lock. I'm going to leave you with a bit of Sister Nancy. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nation's land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.